Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to another beautiful summer week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, which means Claire Zauke is with us. Claire is our Healthcare Director here at Citizen Action. Welcome, Claire. Hi, thank you. Good to be here. And Robert Craig, Executive Director at Citizen Action is with us. Robert, good to have you. A happy summer, everyone. Yeah, it's it. Well, it is summer and uh, we are certainly enjoying it here in Wisconsin, other than the we certainly are feeling the effects of the wildfires. We can haze throughout the Midwest, including here in Wisconsin, reminding us of our ongoing challenges with climate. But folks, we have a lot to talk about. We are going to be starting this week our first interviews with the number of candidates now that are lined up in the United States Senate race to take on Senator Ron Johnson, who I think, as we have talked about, might be one of the most vulnerable Republicans in the country. And uh, the big news this week was uh, Mandela Barnes, Lieutenant Governor, jumped in. Uh, the field is starting to look like it's solidifying. It's a large field. And we're going we're gonna to try to talk to all the Democratic candidates over the next few months. And we're going to start today with State Senator Chris Larson will join us later in the show, and we look forward to that conversation and really diving in with you all on this critical U.S. Senate race. But with that, let us start by talking about the goings-on at the federal government. Um, we have been spending a lot more time this past year talking about Congress because there's actually governing going on, and the things we've been talking most about are the infrastructure bills. And also last week, we spent time talking about the $3.5 trillion budget deal. And there's been news this week on that and uh, want to have a conversation. Robert, I know you're sort of been really sort of one of our lead trackers on this stuff at the federal level, actually you and Claire. Uh, but uh, Robert, give us the latest this week on the infrastructure bill. There was, there was certainly some news this week that made it sound like uh, the Republicans were opposing it, but it sounds like it's procedural. And if, if I have everything right, it might be 11 Republicans on board for the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill. Robert, what's the latest? Well, there might be 12, but there's a new one, Senator Conrad from North Dakota, well, but there might beautiful. Not be. Beautiful. Thanks for the update. <laughs> but there may not be 12 either. There may be far less than that. The Biden folks, to their credit, learned their lesson that in the early year uh, part of the Obama administration, when they had the most happy to do things, they let the Republicans talk them into the idea they were negotiating over things like the Affordable Care Act and the stimulus. And it was surface bargaining, as they say in labor world. That is, it was simply designed to run out the clock and delay and prevent Democrats from doing as much in the valuable first year and a half of an administration, which is where the biggest things traditionally and historically get done. A hearkening back to the 100 days, famous 100 days from FDR. And so there's a complicated dance in which it is unclear whether the Republicans are negotiating in good faith with the moderate Democrats, the 10 of moderate Democrats who are desperate for bipartisanship in an era of polarization and of a right-wing Republican party that is winner-take-all and is fine with breaking government. And so the problem is, is that, they, that what Schumer did this week on their two tracks, okay, that's the bipartisan track, but then the Democrats do reconciliation and tend to do everything else in the Biden agenda 
and that came through the Sanders Budget Committee last week, $3.5 trillion worth, which is a compromise between more mainline Democrats and progressive Democrats, but more than Biden had asked for. Uh, and so the question is, if you what the moderate Dem- Senate Democrats are basically requiring is, is that we have to do this bipartisan deal. The Republicans would like the reconciliation package not to happen. And it's unclear whether they even want this bipartisan deal. And they're squabbling right now over the revenue because the Republicans don't want to pay for any of this. Note that because they're the party of deficits and the fiscal profligacy generally. Uh, but that they're fighting over that and whether it's more mass transit versus highways, which, of course, is a huge equity issue and a huge climate issue. We need more transit for equity and climate. We need less fossil fuel, singles, uh, internal combustion engine uh, transportation system. So we can fix what we have, obviously, which this would do or do some of it, not everything we need. And so what Senator Schumer was doing as majority leader was forcing a test vote, which they knew they would lose, to make it clear that time is not unlimited. And reports are that the progressive block of 10 senators are the ones forcing Schumer to take that action. So there's a real dynamic between the progressive wing and the, I would call them the conservative wing, the far right of the Democratic Party. And so the Republicans complained. They voted against the procedure. So they allowed, they did not allow it to come to um, to end debate, to come to a vote, and it was not intended to lead to the final vote. There's a lot of process in between. And so the pundits all seem to think there's going to be a deal early next week, and Mitt Romney, one of the key Republican moderates, if you can call them that, um, are promising that. We'll see. They had a deal three weeks ago at the White House and shook hands, and now they still don't have a deal. So they may be surface bargaining, and there may be two, three, four senators or more, five, who are there because McConnell wants them to pretend to bargain, who are going to pull the plug because McConnell doesn't want a deal of any kind, either the bipartisan, a lesser package, or certainly not the uh, much more progressive reconciliation package. So if Biden pulls this off, it's brilliant because he does it in two tracks and he gets, gets a lot of his agenda and he gets some bipartisanship. Very unclear whether it will happen. The key is if it falls apart for moderate Democrats to blame the Republicans, understand they wouldn't do it, so that they will then allow it all be done in a reconciliation package with only Democratic votes. And that that is the next of the the conundrum. Can we get the bipartisan? And if we can't, can we hold all the moderate Democrats, including Senators Manchin and Sinema? Claire, this is um, super important for not only just to obviously get the bipartisan infrastructure bill through, but we talked about this last week. There's a lot of things, particularly on healthcare, uh, that we care about that are involved in this $3.5 trillion package. And the success of, of this first infrastructure bill is absolutely critical for us getting these to move. Your thoughts on uh, the latest on this infrastructure bill? Robert, you know, seems to mention that it has a good chance, but it is unknown. What are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, to be clear, there's two different pieces of legislation that we're talking about. We're talking about the infrastructure bill, which has all of the um, sort of roads and transit stuff that Robert just described. And then there's the $3.5 trillion 
um, budget reconciliation bill and that are running along parallel but separate tracks um, that Robert described, right? The infrastructure bill that's going the sort of more traditional attempted bipartisan path and the reconciliation bill um, that the Democrats are hoping um, they can pass with um, just their their 51 votes, um, which is again through this sort of special reconciliation way, right? And the reconciliation bill <clears throat> is the bill that has the um, healthcare priorities in it that we care about. Um, to be clear, it also has a lot of other priorities that we care about. There's um, things in there to help address uh, climate and energy issues. Um, there are things in there to expand um, paid leave and childcare and um, access to community college. But um, the healthcare things that we care about are um, Senator Baldwin's uh, Medicaid Saves Lives Act that would, uh, on the federal level, address the badger care expansion gap in Wisconsin, as well as bring um, more benefits to people on Medicare by lowering drug prices and then bringing in dental and hearing coverage for folks on Medicare. So, but to answer your initial question, um, how do I feel about this? Um, I feel very positive. I think the strategy here of running um, simultaneous uh, bipartisan and reconciliation processes is really smart. Uh, and I think that is to both the um, Schumer and Pelosi and Biden's um, credit. I do think that it's um, a lot to get done and that usually the Senate tries to break in August for recess. Um, I'm beginning to get skeptical that that is going to happen. Um, and so I would tell our listening audience that um, we may be coming on this podcast in a week or two and saying, hey, we need you to call your senators because they're not breaking for recess. They're going to try to pound out this legislation. And um, we need you to express support for keeping these bills as strong as they are. Because the other danger, of course, is that as negotiations go on and the timeline goes on, that there could be pressure on legislators and members of Congress to um, weaken provisions of the bills to take things out um, so that they could be more likely to pass more quickly. And of course, we don't want that. We want them to stay as strong and robust as they are now, especially the reconciliation bill that's jam-packed with so many of these priorities that we care about. So we got we to gotta keep the pressure and the excitement on for these bills as they are. And, uh, and like I said, we may be coming to you in August to, to try to um, keep, that, keep that energy up and that pressure up. This this discussion really gets us all back to uh, a conversation also about the filibuster, which um, certainly came up this week. There was a lot of pressure to try to get uh, President Biden to talk more about uh, his position on the filibuster. But really, right, we're, this is, as you talked about, Claire, kind of a clever strategy, hopefully, right, to try to avoid the filibuster since the budget process doesn't have to go through it. Um, but Robert, want to get your thoughts on this. I mean, this is all very fragile. And if it falls apart, does this smart process, as Claire has described it right, does this help us lead to a situation where maybe the filibuster could come back onto the table in a discussion where you might have some Democratic senators in a different position if all of this falls apart? Sure, I will just say before we go to uh, the filibuster that Claire is right to bring out the human uh, infrastructure part of reconciliation. Uh, but in addition, the reconciliation package is going to be where the climate things are done. And we are in a climate time, bo a, a time bomb right now, as we can see by all this misty smoke that Matt referred to that's coming from out-of-control wildfires. This is coming 
this, is, this kind of thing is supposed to become mid-century. And we have to uh, cut emissions in half by 2030. And so there are 10 senators, the Senate progressive bloc, and there are maybe 50 to 60 House progressives that are saying no, no climate, no deal. And they're going to vote down the, recon- the bipartisan bill if they don't get the reconciliation bill, because the bipartisan bill is more in the 1960s view of infrastructure. These are all connected. This could fall apart in many ways, like the Republicans aren't serious, including McConnell, and they dig below 60 or because the moderate Democrats, when it falls apart, then blame Democrats and still won't do what's needed to reconciliation. But then, of course, just a filibuster question, which we'll talk about after the break. That's right. We'll take a quick break here. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are talking about the goings-on in Congress, how complicated it is. And uh, in particular, Robert was about to get into the possibility of a filibuster if all of this strategic package falls through and uh, we're not able to get anything done. Would would there be more of an appetite, both from the president, but also certain uh, senators, Democratic senators, for the filibuster? Robert? We have an issue that there's a lot that can't be done through reconciliation. If it can't be done through reconciliation or it isn't a judicial appointee, that's previous workarounds of the filibuster that were done by both Democrats and Republicans the last decade. If we can't, we can't, we can't do, for example, voting rights and, uh, and clean money reforms, the uh, For the People Act and the John Lewis Act, for example. We, there's a whole lot of other things we can't do, raising the wage of $15 an hour, having real labor law reform, which is the PRO Act. And the problem is we have a handful of senators Two that are vocal, but there are others that are more silently supportive, holding on to a a filibuster, which is not part of the original Constitution. In fact, the founders believed the majority rule in the Senate very clearly. I direct everyone to James Madison's writings during the whole period up to the early 1830s, uh, but also in the original debates of 1787. Uh, But then in addition, it was created by slavery advocates and Jim Crow activists. Um, advocates as a way to protect slavery. And for nearly 100 years, the only things that were filibustered were civil rights bills for black people. And so, and now it's being abused to the point where it's now the rule, period. No bill can pass without 60, uh, which is absurd. And they can just send an email to kill a bill. And so Biden is still, though he's come a long way, a lot further, frankly, than Governor Evers has in learning that in modern democratic politics, you have to be much more progressive and move much more towards the progressive wing, that it's a, it's a big tent coalition and progressives are strong and growing in this party. And so he's come a long way in what he's proposing, what his packages are, more the bolder stuff than we've seen since the 1960s. But on the filibuster, he's a bit stuck in the mud with his 40 years of, uh, of being in the U.S. Senate, uh, where he is, he's, is, is reluctant to advocate for this, and it has to happen. We lose the midterms if we don't secure the vote. The securing of the vote and the stealing of the vote is happening by Republican legislatures in a very partisan way. It cannot be fixed in a bipartisan way because it's a partisan attack. And so that's where we are right now. Biden, in his town hall at CNN this week, disappointingly said that he thought it would it would blow up the Senate if we got rid of the filibuster. What majority rule is impossible? And there's no, you know, uh, other state senates don't have filibusters. It's a completely unique, weird rule. And but he said he'd be open to the talking filibuster, which Senator Manchin has said, well, if structured right, that could help a lot. 
here's the thing to understand. The filibuster rule, Rule 21, was a rule in World War One designed to prevent filibusters and end debate, and it's been distorted. It was distorted over the uh, years by Jim Crow senators in the, uh, in the 20s and especially the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So well, that's where we are, and we have to get 50 votes to do it, but the filibuster must go. Well, we'll continue to track the ongoings of both the infrastructure bill, the budget, and all the other important bills that Robert mentioned and how the filibuster plays a role in it. But with that, Claire, big news this week on the healthcare front is we continue to have surging Delta variant throughout the country in areas where we have high levels of no vaccination or shall we say low vaccination rates. Uh, It is spreading badly. States like Missouri and Florida seeing their hospitals fill up. The White House floated this week, Claire, that we may have to go back to mass mandates. Your thoughts on uh, the, the, both that uh, proposal and the latest on where we are with COVID? Yeah, I will say, first of all, that it's not just the White House that is suggesting you may have to go back to masking. A lot of major urban areas in the country have already taken this step, Um, or I shouldn't say a lot, a number. Um, Los Angeles County, for example, has already done this, um, and they did it a couple weeks ago. And we may remember back to a year and a half ago, um, Los Angeles was one of the first places in the country to do things like Um, go on lockdown before we even had more than a handful of cases that we knew about, at least in Wisconsin. So, um, you know, what happens in cities like Los Angeles is often um, sort of the canary in the coal mine for things that we may have to do in places in the middle of the country like Wisconsin. Um, So I would say, yes, I am. um, I'm very concerned about um, the rapid spread of the Delta variant of uh, the coronavirus. Um, and I would not be surprised if, um, in Wisconsin, um, the governor or local leaders tried to reinstate some mask, uh, masking requirements. And that honestly would be, um, totally appropriate. Although I recognize it would be challenging because there are so many folks here who, um, have been hostile to uh, masking requirements. We continue to see a very slow uptick in the number of folks that are vaccinated in Wisconsin. Um, So we are officially um, halfway through the entire population of Wisconsin that has received at least uh, one dose. However, um, that number is moving really slowly, right? So so we're at 51.2% in Wisconsin. And I think the last time I checked a week or so ago, it was something like 50.4%. So we're going up at you know, a percent or so a week or every couple of weeks. And, you know, it's, it's just not fast enough. Um, there's still a tremendous amount of vaccine hesitancy that we should be concerned about in this state. And um, I, know, I know I've been harping on this for a while, but um, it's still true. We, we really need to do a better job of talk of identifying and talking to people who, for whatever reason, um, are, are opposed to or hesitant to receive the vaccine. So this week, uh, something interesting, I, at least I've noticed, is happening. And that tells me that the politics might be shifting on this or that Republicans have polling that demonstrates that they might be uh, very vulnerable here, be held responsible for the for this. Uh, Ron DeSantos was out, I think it was just yesterday, uh, 
urging people to get vaccines. We're seeing sort of this slightly changing uh, uh, tone. Uh, it's good to hear, given what's going on and what Claire just laid out. I mean, it is still shocking that we're just barely over 50% in Wisconsin to be double vaccinated. In other areas of the country, it's worth worse. Robert, Claire, your thoughts on, do you guys, do you guys think that there's some uh, polling or some uh, information out there? The Republicans seem to be changing their tune a little bit on this. Maybe, but they're also killing off their own constituency <laughs> and they're projecting how much worse this is going to get. So it's mixed. You have Senator DeSantis, DeSantis. Only good thing I can say about Mitch McConnell, I can think off the top of my head as he's been for vaccinations all along. Uh, but Fox News has been shifting. You know, Fox News internally has a vaccine passport. So it's totally contrary to their opinion hosts. Uh, but Sean Hannity is now coming out for vaccinations, which is big. And I can't believe I'm going to say something about good about Sean. But uh, the other two primary, uh, pri you know, uh, primetime hosts, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram, are not uh, doing that. And Tucker has done more than anyone to uh, other than Trump himself to uh, sow doubt about the vaccine. I also think there's a broader problem here. First of all, you have to understand that two thirds of American counties have below 40 percent. So, and that gives the virus a lot of ability to move. It is killing a lot of young people. A doctor in Missouri who put that online about young people dying and begging for the vaccine and being told it's too late um, was assaulted and got death threats on social media and ended their social media account, I believe. So that's the kind of stuff going on with denial. But I think there's another level. There are still huge racial disparities, especially African-Americans. I don't think that's all denial. I think we still have a very rickety public health system and a, and a very inadequate response to get to people who are hard to get to and who don't have cars and who don't, aren't getting good information and don't know where to go. And I haven't seen the investment. I haven't seen the Democrats. Uh, we, have a, we have a horribly funded public health system. Where are the proposals to have a serious funded public health system like, uh, like other advanced industrial countries have? So I do think there's still a we have a uh, we we're not reaching a lot of people who would get vaccinated if they were offered a problem and for some reason it's not been that's a democratic problem we're not even proposing anything big certainly it wasn't proposed in the state of wisconsin it's it's ridiculous and then we also have the problem as far as the cdc look it was predictable and we did it on battleground wisconsin that the way they uh told unvaccinated people that they could take their masks off and it was Liberation Day was going to cause just an end to all mask guidance, even signs, even requests, and was going, and the unvaccinated were going to do it as well. And so the problem is, is that the large number of unvaccinated people are mixing with vaccinated people. And with the Delta virus, you, you, you shed a thousand times more virus. So people who are vaccinated are getting the virus. They're just, for the most part, not, not 100%, not getting sick or very sick at all. <laughs> but they're spreading it. And so, and what's gonna happen is worse variants than the Delta. We have to understand that we're gonna get variants that will get around the, uh, the vaccines if we, don't, if we don't put a stop to this right quick. So with that, we are, we're gonna to have to take our second break. You are listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. When we return, we're gonna be joined by State Senator Chris Larson, who's running for United States Senate. He'll be the first of multiple candidates that we'll be interviewing over the upcoming weeks. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. 
We are very fortunate to be joined by State Senator Chris Larson, who is running for the United States Senate. Senator Larson, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Matt. Uh, good to be back on the, on the podcast with everybody. Well, we appreciate that you've uh, been a longtime listener and obviously come on regularly when there are important issues going on. So we appreciate you getting us jump started with our interviews of all the Democratic candidates. So tell us, uh, Chris, you've been at this uh, a long time, long, you know, long track record as a progressive. What made you decide that uh, this w- that you had to jump in and run for uh, the United States Senate? Yeah, this, uh, I mean, Ron Johnson specifically is, is pretty awful. Uh, this is a guy who um, has been apologizing for the January 6th insurrectionists and trying to rewrite history. Uh, we know, you know, he's been a mouthpiece for Vladimir Putin and um, pushing for Russian propaganda. Uh, but the big thing that finally pushed me to, to basically shifting my life and running against Ron Johnson and uh, pledging to do all I can to make sure he is defeated uh, was the, the blatant hypocrisy and the self-servingness where he decided to block two checks, right? The checks that were going to go or the direct checks that were going to go to individuals who sacrificed the most through the pandemic. This was late last year. Um, this wasn't a big piece. This was, this was like the last throws of, of Donald Trump and Republicans in charge. But even that he objected to twice. And he, he tried to go back to saying, oh, we can't afford this. Uh, and knowing that that price tag of that bill of $2 trillion was the same price tag that he gleefully voted for after they added a provision in uh, four years earlier for the Trump tax cuts, and added that provision and that made it so that he could double his personal wealth um, and vaulted him to being the sixth richest U.S. senator. So to see that type of self-servingness, that type of uh, hypocrisy in a time where people were really, really suffering, right? And people have yet to recover from the, the pandemic um, in terms of economic losses. And so to see him say, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're not going to do that. Um, it really, you know, as somebody who, who took all the precautions, and I know a lot of you and your listeners did, and we're still doing this uh, virtually, right, to be safe, um, took all these precautions. And to see the government and to see specific government leaders stand in the way of, of actually making sure that the things that people need that they actually get. So I firmly believe we have to learn the lessons of the pandemic, which is we have to make sure that healthcare is unbound from your employment status, right? I'm a firm believer in Medicare for all so that you have access to healthcare because you deserve it, right? And that you should not have to worry about going bankrupt, uh, of of having that false choice between bankruptcy and getting your uh, medical needs met. Um, I'm a firm believer that we need to make sure that climate change is for, at the forefront of our minds in every decision that we make as a country, um, because this is the, an existential crisis. So I believe that we need to view that through the, grand, the lens of a Green New Deal. Um, and so this is our time not just to replace the worst U.S. senator in the country, and uh, it's, it's a chance to replace him with somebody who is a proven fighter, and that's what I've done. Uh, for my entire career. And that's what I uh, look forward to if I'm lucky enough to serve as U.S. Senator. Claire? Thanks. Um, I, uh, Chris, lovely to have you back on the show. 
Um, (laughs) I watched your first um, commercial slash introductory video on your website and the sort of the title or the theme of it is about unrigging the system. And you listed a couple things um, just now that you talked about in that video, like Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. Um, But one of the things that we that I thought would be interesting because it's very of the moment to dig into is this idea that um, you know we we can have things like Medicare for all and the Green New Deal and pay for them by um, sort of like unrigging the economic system and the tax system that benefits wealthy people like Ron Johnson, and that's a big part of the sort of Senate's budget reconciliation bill that we talk about a lot on this podcast um, that's moving forward right now. And so I'm curious if you have been following um, sort of the tax reform debate in the U.S. Senate right now and if you can talk a little bit about um, how and like why you would support sort of unrigging the um, this like current tax system that benefits wealthy people and corporations over like working in middle class Wisconsinites. Yeah um, and yes I'm following it with with um, with a lot of attention to um, and I, I, I hope that they do move forward with, with right-sizing the, the tax code so that those who are doing the best uh, off of the current system are also paying the most, right? And returning the favor back to the American people. Because uh, right now it is, it is the opposite where they are using their additional savings to buy politicians and to further rig the system so that they can end up sucking more wealth away from uh, the population. And that is, this is a, it, it, it is a system that has gone too far. This has been happening for 40 years, right? If you think back prior to 1980, where the tax rate was at 70% for corporations. Uh, and now, you know, if you look, compare that to the recent report that came out a month ago, that showed that some of the top corporations are paying close to nothing in taxes, right? Uh, they figured out all kinds of tax loopholes. And so my campaign is not just about saying that, yes, uh, this system is broken. And a lot of people look at it and say, gosh, it's broken. I can't believe it's it's working this way. It's rigged. It's rigged. This is not happening by accident. This is didn't just didn't just uh, suddenly um, happen. This is something that was rigged over a long period of time. And to change that, it is about making sure that the super rich and corporations pay their fair share and making sure that, that for those funds are put forward to, frankly, finally get the things that that America deserves and other countries have had for decades, right? Of guaranteeing healthcare for every man, woman, and child, that healthcare is, is viewed as a right and not as a, as a product, uh, of making sure that we access, have access to quality, affordable childcare. That, as a parent of two, um, you know, learn that, that I already knew the value of that, but through this pandemic where we were uh, quarantining for most of it on our own, um, that is so important to making sure that the country can operate in a meaningful way and helping people reach their full potential. Robert. So, so yeah, we've got it. We've got to do that for sure. And I do hope that they, uh, uh, they do, they, they frankly get that done, but Claire, just to be clear, 66 of the 100 members of the U S Senate are millionaires. So when this doesn't pass, sometimes you got to wonder, uh, who are they actually looking out for the people that elected them, uh, or are they looking out for their bottom line? So, Chris, uh, great to have you yet again. I usually call you a, a, a Battleground Wisconsin contributor, perhaps, like they give people <laughs> those titles on MSNBC. Uh, 
So question is this, it's a crowded field, right? Looks like a lot of folks think they're the ones to take on Fed or Johnson. And in terms of Fed or Johnson, I couldn't agree more. We found good things to say about Ron DeSantis and Mitch McConnell uh, to this, this week, but I don't know of anything about uh, Ron Johnson. Uh, vaccine denial is another big uh, uh, cause of his, which is killing people. But let me ask you, and this may go into the next segment because we're getting a we're getting we're, we're getting a little short of time. I mean, we have a couple minutes, and that is, what will differentiate you from a policy point of view in uh, between yourself and the other candidates? And I understand not all of them have taken firm positions. So, just projecting forward, what are some of the things you think that people will get in the U.S. Senate from a policy standpoint or where you're positioned in the Democratic caucus in the Senate that some of the other candidates or all of them aren't going to offer? Yeah, it's a good question. And yeah, it, I get, you know, now that we've got a full baseball team of candidates, there's nine now. Um, it's, it's like looking at a Greek menu after bar time trying to figure out what you want. Um, and so you, you start to try and find the differences. And I would say that the very clear difference between me and all the other candidates is I am a proven progressive fighter and I've been very clear about my positions from the beginning and also not, they're not, not afraid to be able to pick the fights when they're needed. And a lot of times that is against the Republicans, right, of taking the step to go to Illinois to stop Scott Walker from stripping collective bargaining from our teachers uh, and our um, public workers. Uh, for 20 days while the Capitol filled up in the largest protest in, in Wisconsin history. Uh, but also sometimes it is against Democrats, right? If they are stepping and uh, if they're moving in a direction where they don't view climate change as real and are, are propping up fossil fuel, the fossil fuel industry running against, that's how I got my Senate seat in the first place is running against a uh, incumbent who, who viewed that and also didn't, um, he didn't believe women had the right to choose uh, for themselves. So I have been that, I've been that consistently across the board. And so if people are looking for a proven progressive fighter that's clear on their positions, uh, I'm your guy. If you're looking for somebody where you're not as sure um, that, that, you know, if, if they're, as they're trying to figure it out, there's certainly other candidates uh, for you in that department then. And with that, we're going to take a break. As uh, soon as we get back, we'll continue our conversation with Senator Larson. Again, folks, you are listening to the Battleground Wisconsin for Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. You can also find us on all different kinds of social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. But we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are talking with State Senator Chris Larson, who is running for the United States Senate. He is the first of many candidates for the Democratic uh, primary that we'll be talking to. Um, Robert, I, you were in conversation. Chris, I know uh, before you were talking a little bit about how you're different, wanted to give you an opportunity since we had a break, if there were something else you wanted to point out uh, where you see a, a difference between you and the other candidates. No, I, yeah, I know I did a wrap for the break and I know Robert had a question. So I'm always more of a fan of the conversation than just very, you know, very good politicians droning on. Yeah. <laughs> Let me burrow down a little on policy. I'll choose one that you just mentioned, you know, the climate crisis. You know, there's a range of views among members of the Democratic members of the U.S. Senate. It's a very big tent party, unlike the Repu modern Republican Party. 
and in the house. And there's a whole range. And so if you look at what on climate, um, AOC said we need a $10 trillion investment, which probably is right from the standpoint of, look, the mid-century effects are happening now, right now. All the smog you're seeing out there, that's what's happening right now. It's, 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 it's the earth is burning. Uh, Bernie Sanders starting negotiation position for the, uh, de- the, the uh, Democratic version of the infrastructure bill was $6 trillion. He compromised down to $3.5 trillion uh, with more moderate Democrats. And I, by, by more moderate, I don't mean the Mansion Cinema wing. There's this whole group in between that are not as conservative mm-hmm. as Mansion and Cinema and Coons and some of those, but are not as progressive as Sanders, Warren, and others. So where would you see yourself on that range, I guess, on climate and what kind of investment we really need to make? Because I think candidates in this race are going to all say they take climate seriously and they're going to be bold. But it's really important voters to understand what bold really means, given the magnitude of the crisis. Uh, fantastic question. Um, I, I would say that, look, we have to actually meet the moment in what it deserves, right? And I, and I get that there's a Washington insider tendency to view the price tag of it and say, well, let's, you know, somehow the moderate viewpoint is uh, by, by spending less money on this. Um, and you got to look at the actual crisis, especially in where it is, right? You, you literally have a fire right now in the Northwest that is larger than the state of Rhode Island. Right. And that is not that is that is it should be exceptional news, but it's 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 only been a couple of years since something like that was happening across California at the same time as we've had the earliest hurricane on record hitting in Florida. So it is it is a problem. And frankly, it's costing our country billions of dollars. And so we actually have to meet the moment for where where it is and what it is. Uh, And that means frankly, ending the fossil fuel subsidies that are propping up an industry that is was committed to to uh, to stopping any any real redress of climate change and was uh, uh, spewing misinformation for decades. So I, I view that we have to be going as far as possible on this. Uh, and I get at some point you have to you have to figure out a compromise and and go with that for the moment. But Frankly, it should be, that's what the, the, the Green New Deal, and that's where that makes sense, because it, it says we're going to be viewing everything through the lens of making sure that we're addressing climate change in a meaningful way, while also making sure that those who need the jobs the most are lifted up out of poverty and helped, because those are the folks who are affected the most by uh, severe climate as well. So this is something, and, and frankly, we can do that, you know, the, 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 the federal government has a huge footprint, and that includes the military. Right, I, I do think that we should be uh, reducing our military spending and spend more on diplomacy. But that aside, the military can do a heck of a lot in making sure that not that that in everything that they're doing, they're reducing their carbon footprint, and uh, to some degree, they're actually at the forefront of that compared to other countries. So uh, me, I, I view it as we should go as far as possible. Yep. Let me ask one quick follow-up. I'm just because we have all the candidates who will come. I think most of them will come. Uh, I want to get find a point if possible. Feel free not to go any further than you're prepared to because you're studying federal policy. You've been a state legislator. But the question is, would you do everything necessary monetarily in terms of mandates, anything we need to do to meet the international standard of cutting emissions in half by 2030 and, and getting down to 80% by 2050? Because almost none of the proposals even meet that standard. 
And I understand you may have to compromise as, okay, I'm not going to get the whole thing in 2023, but I'm going to get it rest in 2024. I understand that you may have to vote for half the loaf, but I mean, are you committed to doing whatever is necessary, regardless of the price tag, regardless of what interest is against it, or what kind of freedom claim is made about like the right to pollute or the right to spew fossil fuels, regardless of its consequence of the species? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, you can count me as one who's going to be pushing for to go as far as we can as a country to address climate change. And there is a whole heck of a lot that, that and, and frankly, it has to we have to be bold to meet this moment. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be one who is pushing out there with Bernie Sanders, with Elizabeth Warren and others to try and get frankly. And it it. It, it sounds like it's out there, but the reality is we we only have one party that actually believes in governance and solving problems anymore. You know, um, the, the other party is only interested in just cutting taxes and padding the bottom lines of the super rich. Um, and so for us, it, it is, yep, at some point there's going to be need to be some compromises. And some of that has to do too with inflation, right? If we're shifting things over uh, too quickly, you could cause some some inflation by government spending if you're doing it all at once. So you have to do some of that over time. But uh, that that is a small worry in light of the fact that the, the planet is literally burning right now, right? Um, and so, yeah, there's there's a heck of a lot that we can be and should be doing. And I'll, I'm interested to see what comes out of this infrastructure project. But uh, there is no scenario where we, we don't have to take this into consideration for the rest of our lives. Right. And so the sooner we get it done, the sooner we can breathe easier. Flair? We have a few minutes, so I thought we could shift our attention back to healthcare stuff, because before I asked you about one of my Sort of favorite personal topics, tax reform. Um, but uh, really, I'm also I'm, I'm here to talk a lot about healthcare. So let's do it. Um, you already that's expressed good. your um, total support for Medicare for all, and that's awesome. Um, but of course, uh, Medicare for all would reform the um, sort of for-profit uh, health insurance delivery system and address a lot of issues with how healthcare is. Um, delivered in this country, but it wouldn't mm -hmm. address every component necessarily of the healthcare system as a whole. And a big one of those are two big components um, that we talk a lot about here at Citizen Action are the um, high costs of prescription drugs and the caregiving delivery system. Because of course, a lot of caregiving is delivered just informally at the family level um, mm -hmm. and care is medical. So I don't know if we have time to talk about both of these topics, but I thought maybe if you feel particularly strongly about um, one of those two topics, um, you could talk to us a little bit about um, how you see that issue and sort of what you would support to try to get at that prog uh, problem at the U.S. Senate level. I would say that the, the, the pharmaceutical specifically, uh, the pharmaceutical industry has a stranglehold on Congress, on the U.S. Senate. Right, and to the point where this was not something that even um, they picked up on in the Obama administration. They they kind of said, okay, well we're we're going to be pushing for access to healthcare. Uh, we're we're going to have to do it in partnership with the pharmaceutical company because if they're on the other side, we're not going to get it done. Um, but the reality is, this is this is it is it, it should be criminal how far they've gone to. Um, to make it seem like life-saving medicine is just another product, right? And in some cases where it should be something that is cheap or free, you know, you think of insulin, um, 
insulin is something where the, the, the person who um, had the patent for it sold it to the government for two bucks with the understanding that this would be prevalent and widely available. And right now, you know, like it seems like on a regular basis, I'm running into people who cannot afford their insulin because the prices are 10 times higher here than they are in Canada. And that is, it absolutely doesn't have to be that way. People should not have to split pills. So I would say, yes, that is a big piece of what I want to do is making sure that pharmaceuticals are affordable, that they're, they stop this scheme that I know you're familiar with, where they change the formula slightly and then say, ah, yes, we can't make this a generic because this is the highest and the best. We have to charge 150 for it or, or higher. Um, and that is something I, I, I'll just say I carry to my core as of having been somebody, um, I, I've had asthma since I was five, right? People may not know that because I've run 40 plus marathons. I just did a half Ironman on Sunday. But I am, if, if we change the system, I am uninsurable and my medicine, I had to put in, go into credit card debt um, after, while in college because I couldn't afford it. And so it, it makes absolutely no sense that we are spending so damn much money on pharmaceuticals. And that is one where uh, we should be doing all we can to make sure that people have access to life-saving medicines. Well, we unfortunately have to wrap up this great conversation. Uh, Senator, before we go, tell our listeners if they want to get involved in your campaign, where they should go to get involved. Sure. Uh, we've got a website, uh, voteforlarson.org. There you can find the, the launch video that was referenced earlier. Uh, you can see the different um, viewpoints and stances that I've taken. And uh, we're also unrolling larger policy points and, and have done that at a, a faster pace than all of the other candidates. And of course, people can chime in if they want to donate, they can do that there um, and really looking people to join the join the movement. Um, and I really appreciate the time to be able to be on the show with you guys again. Really looking forward to being in there in person <laughs> again. Uh, and seeing each of you. Well, we are really glad that you're running and we're thrilled that you were able to come on and get us started with this great conversation. This should be a critically important discussion and election. And thank you so much, uh, uh, Senator Larson, for joining us. You bet. All the best. All right. With that, we have got to wrap up this show this week. Uh, of course, we want to thank Senator Larson for joining us. And we will have more candidates for the U.S. Senate seat next week on the Battleground Wisconsin. And with that, we got to wrap it up. We'll see you next week at the Battleground Wisconsin.